Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like when your fantasy league meets up at your house. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this is anything but a fantasy. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK, and BikeRadar.com. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar Meets podcast where we chat to interesting and influential people from the cycling world. A quick note before we start, don't forget to subscribe by searching for Bike Radar in your preferred podcast service. There's a new show every Monday, so make sure you never miss an episode. I'm Mildred Locke, staff writer at Bike Radar, and in this episode I'm very excited to be joined by Emily Chappell. Emily's an ultra-endurance racer who spent years in the saddle conquering several continents, both supported and unsupported. She was the fastest woman in the 2016 transcontinental race, and she's also competed in the Strathpuffer and the Transatlantic Way, to name just a few of her many achievements. Her latest book, Where There's a Will, Hope, Grief and Endurance in a Cycle Race Across a Continent, follows her journey to the transcontinental finish line and the ups and downs along the way. She talks openly about overcoming her fears, digging deep for the will to go on, and the strength she draws from the people around her. I personally can't stop raving about it. It's such a relatable story of self-doubt, self-discovery, riding through grief, and achieving what at first seems impossible. I could go on, but she's much more interesting than I am, so welcome, Emily. Hello. It's good to be here. It's good to have you. Um, You have just returned from a book tour, is that right? Well, not completely right. I'm kind of in the middle of a book tour. So I've been on the road for about a month and I've currently got a week at home, which is amazing. And then I'm off for another 10 days or so to do a bit more of the Northern England. And then that's it for this year. Brilliant. And how's it going? Really well, but it's really really tiring. Um, So yeah, the events all seem to be selling out and going well. People seem happy and a lot of people have bought the book. Um, And it's really fun as well because I'm doing a lot of it by bike. So I tend to have these really long, hard, cold rides. But then I get to somewhere um, where I'm speaking and I meet all the bike people in that particular town and get to chat to them and make new friends. And then the next morning, get up and do it all again. Fantastic. So, yes, it's kind of not quite a holiday, but it's a really enjoyable trip with just a lot of very intense socialising and talking about myself. That sounds great. And how are people reacting to the book? Uh, they seem to like it so far. Um, I'm still stealing myself for, you know, the bad reviews, if any come in. Um, but no, people seem to be um, liking it. I've had some nice feedback from people who have had some of the experiences I write about in the book. So from people who have done the same races I've done in some cases and people who've been through grief and... Um, that really means a lot because they are the people who would spot it if I got something wrong or didn't quite manage to capture what it's like. So 
when someone says, yes, I was there in that race in 2016, this is how it was, I think, thank God. (laughs) And also, great, I think I might have got that right. Brilliant. I mean, I've said it already, but I love this book um, and I'm personally very inspired by you. So I would really like to delve into some of the key lessons that you've learned from your racing career. Most listeners will already know about the transcontinental race, but just in case you don't, it's a self-supported race from one checkpoint to another that spans around 4,000 kilometres through Europe. 2016 was Emily's second attempt at the TCR, which that year went from Belgium to Turkey. Riders are responsible for creating their own routes, but they must ride through four control points, which are usually up mountains just to keep it challenging, and these dictate the general direction the race takes. So, Emily, first things first, since we're bike radar and we like bikes, can you tell us a bit about the bike that you raced on and are you still riding it? Yes, I can. Um, it was an amazing bike. Uh, so I was on a, a Shand Stushi, which was built by Shand in Scotland. Um, and this bike was completely designed for me, as in it was a bespoke steel frame, but also every single part of the build was kind of planned with me and my racing in mind. So the particular bike I rode was a collaboration between Isla Roundtree and the Shans. Um, I'd been going for a lot of long rides with her that year and uh, I noticed that as we were riding along, she's a total nerd and she was kind of eyeing me up and thinking, hmm, yeah, your setup's slightly wrong. Yeah, I could <laughs> I could sort that out. And in the end, I don't even think it was a favour to me or a personal thing. She just got a bee in her bonnet about how the bike had to be right. So she um, sort of informed Shand that we were building this particular bike with very specific geometry that she had in mind to sort out my riding position. And um, sent them all her measurements and recommendations and all of that. And what resulted was this bike that, it was funny because it put me in a completely different position from what I'd been riding before. Because I'd never uh, thought about my riding position. I'd just ridden whatever bike was roughly the right size. And I knew I was getting it all wrong. But I was used to it. Um, And I thought, even if you put me in the right position, it would feel wrong now. But as soon as I got on that bike, I simultaneously thought, well, this feels really different. But also it just felt like falling into place. And the very first ride on it, it was just absolutely fine. And since then, my riding position has changed even on other bikes. So that was quite a revelation. And then, yeah, everything else about the bike. I mean, it was it was just really It was the bike I've ridden that had the most attention to detail put into it. So it was light um, steel Columbus tubing, um, slightly oversized tubing so it could be thinner and therefore lighter, carbon fork, um, carbon wheels from Hunt Wheels. Thank you very much to them. (laughs) And then I had uh, a Sondyna hub in the front um, so I could um, power my lights and charge my devices and things. And... um, I think it might be maybe the first bike I had that had discs. Oh, no, no, it wasn't. But I think it was the first one I had that had mechanical discs. Okay. And that was something I was quite keen on because, um, I, you know, I can completely see the point of hydraulic discs. But I thought if something goes wrong with that in the middle of yeah. Albania, um, I'm not going to be able to sort it out. Whereas mechanicals, you can kind of eyeball it and figure out what's going wrong if something does. So a lot of the bike, was it was built for performance, but it was also built bearing in mind my own ability to fix it, which is admittedly more limited than some people's. <laughs> and um, it worked like a charm. Um, really? I think the the one thing that didn't quite go right was I, I was riding, uh, running tubeless for the first time. 
And uh, it certainly wasn't the fault of tubeless, but it just didn't work out on that particular ride. I had oh, no. such elaborate punctures that in the end I had to put <laughs> tubes in both wheels and that was just bad oh, luck. No. That's a shame. Um, is that the bike that um, you rode for the first uh, time as well in 2015 or did you? Uh, no, I rode the <coughs> Shand in 2016 and 2017. Okay. So what did you ride in the first uh, that was a Genesis Datum. Oh, okay. Um, and that was that was a lovely bike. It was very sadly too small for me. <laughs> I had a, a dodgy bike fit and so oh, ended up getting a bike a size too small, which is such a shame because I ended up hating it. Mm. It's actually an amazing bike. And now my <laughs> sister-in-law is riding it and loving it. Um, oh, at least it's getting some use. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was, um, that was, I think, the first one they made. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was quite a treat to ride, except for the sort of not being the right size. Fair enough. And where is the Shand now? Are you still riding it? Well, the Shand, <laughs> the Shand is in my shed in a few different pieces. Um, I have, I have ridden it into the ground. Um, so I've done probably more miles on that bike than I've done on any other bike. And I rode it last year from um, Calgary to uh, Whitehorse. Um, and I think that ride in particular just killed everything on the bike. (laughs) And then a little, uh, time after I got back to the UK, I went out on a long ride and that classic thing where your mech hanger snaps and you're miles from anywhere and you (laughs) don't have a chain tool and you have a very long walk. And since then the bike has just, like, that was the final straw. So at some point it's going to be a very big expensive project because I really want to be back on it. Mm. But there's so much work needs doing to it. So at the moment, it's just kind of yeah. sitting in my shed, biding its time. It will rise again. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear that. And and what are you riding now then? I'm currently on a Canyon Endurace, Ooh. which, oh, it's glorious. <laughs> Such a nice bike. So that, um, I've now got this summer job where I lead um, a group of riders around the Tour de France route one week ahead of the pros Um, and for that I needed a bike that was kind of like a high performance carbon road bike like it has to be light and fairly fast Mm -hmm. but also I'm riding 200 kilometers a day for three weeks over mountains and all sorts of things so it has to be comfortable as well and compliant and I think for this one I did want stuff like DI2 and hydraulics because my hands are not all they were I mean all those years of riding steel bikes over rough terrain and all of that and you know I'm, I'm getting on I'm 37 now so my hands are starting to be a little bit less dexterous and I just wanted something that I could rely on to to stop and yeah. so that I didn't have to. So the Shand was so exhausted by the time I stopped riding it that the shifters need replacing. If I want to change into the big ring, it's kind of, it's a whole arm effort, it's not just a finger. <laughs> so I wanted, um, you know, gears and brakes that were very, very easy to change. And then... Um, I mean, the thing I love about the Endurace is it's magically the right geometry for me because it's off the peg. Like it's it was a it was a wow. bit of a, a lucky hit. But I noticed after this summer, I, it suddenly occurred to me I hadn't had any back pain all year, and that's something I just get on long rides. It's not very serious, but it's just one of the kind of the gripes yeah. that 
that occurs. And I suddenly thought, oh, yeah, that's that's a, no longer a thing that happens to me. So it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a great bike. And I think it's partly the geometry and partly that it's it's built to be very compliant. Yeah. So you just got that little bit more comfort. And that's something that helps your recovery as mm. well as your, you know, how you feel on the bike. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wish I knew what I felt like. <laughs> I I um I have a real trouble fitting onto bikes that are off the peg. So, and I the Shan sounds amazing. Um, I would like to go back to talking about the transcontinental, mm-hmm. um, because I have so many questions for you. Um, but first of all, I really want to know, um, how did you know when you were ready to ride it? <laughs> After I tried the first time, I think. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think in my heart of hearts, I knew I was ready or I wouldn't have entered. But I entered feeling like a massive fraud and thinking I've somehow got it into my head that I want to do this. But I clearly can't. It's clearly beyond me. I'm just setting myself up for embarrassment and disaster (laughs) and failure. And I went into it just expecting that I would have to manage, you know, my failure effectively and being scared of what might happen when I realised I really couldn't go on. And I mean, I, I didn't finish the race, um, but that was for a very specific reason. And I understood as soon as I'd made the mistake that I had overdone it. I had not slept enough. And that meant I eventually ground to a halt. As soon as I dropped out the race and recovered, I thought, OK, right, well, that's clearly what I what I got wrong. But I actually felt really happy after that, because apart from not sleeping, the race had gone really well. I hadn't been way behind everyone else, as I just assumed I would be. And I was all right at it. Mm-hmm. I was capable of riding a stupid number of miles a day and keeping going and dealing with stuff and not sleeping much. Could have slept more. <laughs> and I had enjoyed it. It wasn't the hardest thing I'd ever done. It was just I like to do hard things. It was great. I was in my element. And that proved to me that actually this was something I could do and something I wanted to do. So the second year I did it, I didn't know I was going to win. I didn't plan to win. But I knew I was going to go back and do it properly because now I knew this was something I could do and it was somewhere I belonged. I think it was that as well. I'd thought I was trying to sneak into a world that belonged to other people. And as soon as I got there, I realised that they were ready for me. They were sort of wondering when I'd turn up. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and did you have to do much to prepare for it? Um, in a way, no, because I always cycle a lot so it wasn't like I had to suddenly up my mileage or anything Um, and the way I tend to prepare for a long event is I'm afraid very unscientific I've never had a training plan the most I'll do is kind of schedule various other events of increasing magnitude leading up to whatever it is just so I have a sense I'm roughly in the right place so the first year I did the transcontinental I think the yeah, the biggest thing I did was the Brian Chapman Audax, mm. which was uh, well known, goes yeah. twice the length of Wales in a weekend, 600k. And that was amazing because I'd known of it for years as an impossible thing that I would never be able to do. And I not only did it, but I enjoyed it. I had an amazing time. And that was a real confidence booster. And yeah, that was that was more or less it. And I did lots of big, like 400k rides and yeah. things just on my own. My philosophy was if I can, sounds really needlessly masochistic, but I thought <laughs> if I can suffer a lot before the race, I will suffer less on the race because I will have partly got it out of my system. But I think more, 
I'll have got used to suffering. Yeah. And so I won't be as scared of it. And when it happens, I'll have some experience and I'll know how it works. And that actually, that that worked out. Although, I mean, it wasn't awful. You know, there were some hard times, but yeah. I enjoyed it. Like a lot of the big rides I did, I had a great time. I always got home being really happy I'd done the ride. I never regretted anything. And I don't know why I'd assumed in advance that it would all be so horrible because it really wasn't. It was great. So in terms of preparation, what um, what else did you do in terms of what did you take with you? Uh, what did you eat? What t- Take me through. That's a very big question. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, well, in a way, it was a very big question because I spent the whole year thinking, right, what do I take with me? But actually, in some ways, it was a very small question because you carry a very limited amount of stuff. Uh, you have very limited space. And the less you carry, I mean, if you're one of those people who cares about weight, obviously, you want to carry as little Mm. as possible. And I didn't really, but, you know, you just don't have space for much. So anything that wasn't necessary didn't get taken. And also, in a slightly lesser way, the less stuff you've got, the less faff you've got. Every single thing you're carrying is something you can potentially waste time with. And you just don't need that. So packing was mainly a case of unpacking. Um, And then the things I carried, so people often ask me what my number one bit of kit is, which is a completely useless question because everything was essential. Um, So I could give you my, you know, my top 25 bits of kit or something. (laughs) Um, One of the things was having clothing that was modular. So rather than having like a warm jacket, I had a gilet and a pair of arm warmers because you could sort of mix and match those and adapt what you were wearing um, in a much more sort of granular way. Um, So I had arm warmers, leg warmers, I had warm gloves, I had a gilet and a waterproof. And I mean, there's photos you see of me in the race where I'm wearing absolutely all of that. And then there's photos taken often just like shortly afterwards when I descended from the mountain pass and I'm back to just shorts and a jersey. Um, I carried a spare pair of shorts. Um, I had one pair of bib shorts and one pair of non-bibs. And I washed a pair every day because that's very important Mm -hmm. if you want to avoid saddle sore. Um, And I also noticed, uh, to my surprise, I normally prefer to wear bibs. But when you've been riding for that long, I've never experienced this at other times, the bibs started to pull on the back of my neck a bit. Ah. And I mean, that's not an anti-bib thing because I've never experienced it before or after. It really was just in the thick of that race. And having the non-bib shorts was a bit easier in terms of, uh, you know, going to the loo and stuff like that. So I tended to to favour them. Um, And I had a a really lightweight sleeping bag. It was an exped sort of light summer sleeping bag. I I think it was an Alp kit bivy um apodura luggage and that was really good because for example their uh their seat pack comes in three different sizes and i actually ended up sizing down because i realized i was carrying so little i didn't really need it one of the things i did find though when i was packing was it was a really good idea to leave a bit of space um Partly because your kit will eventually get messier and not be as neatly folded as when you leave home. And also because you just need, for example, it was really handy sometimes to have an empty uh, fuel pod on my bars because I sometimes just needed somewhere to chuck my phone in, you know, if I had to break suddenly or something like that. Um, And having a bit of space in my seat pack meant I could put extra food in there. Mm -hmm. And I do remember talking to a guy, I think it was the start of the 2017 race, 
And he was carrying all the same stuff as me. But because all of his stuff was kind of micro and lightweight, he had literally just like a seat pack and he showed it all to me. But it was all so neatly packed. I thought, what are you going to do, mate, on day 10 (laughs) when everything is... (laughs) Yeah, falling out. I mean, he was probably a more organised rider than me, but I... I was happy to have a little bit of space. And the key there when you're packing is don't fill all your space because you are tempted to fill it. Um, But it was all about what can I not carry rather than what can I carry. Yeah, I mean, thinking about that that guy with with his very micro kind of luggage, you know, what are you going to do when you're going around Lidl and you want to grab absolutely everything to eat? (laughs) Just eat it before you go. Well, my setup was kind of carefully arranged around having a lot of space for food up front, partly because I love food. And it's a motivator, you know, seeing Absolutely. a burek in front of you is like a carrot and a stick. Okay, what's a burek? A burek, right. Um, <laughs> I've probably eaten about 500 of them in my time. <laughs> it's um, a sort of pastry that you get in um, Greece, uh, the Balkans, Turkey. It's kind of greasy filio pastry with cheese inside it or sometimes cheese and spinach or meat Um, and you get them freshly baked and they're absolutely amazing you can find them everywhere in the Balkans and I just lived off them in my head there's an imaginary line on the map somewhere around Slovenia where you go from the pizza zone into the burek zone (laughs) and for me that's quite an exciting moment when I realise I've got another (laughs) thousand k of burek so I'd often have one of them in my front bag and um, yeah it was also it save me time because if you can eat if you've got a few hours food there you don't have to stop and get food you don't even have to stop and get food out your other bags you can just keep going and keep eating and it removes one of your excuses to stop which you are always looking for oh I bet (laughs) that's the thing it is a race at the end of the day so you do need to keep moving so you said something about a fuel pod Mm. so what exactly how was your cockpit set up well I had um two uh, not not Alpkit Apajura Let's let's say yeah. that again. Yeah. I hope I didn't say Alpkit for the other one. So I had two Apajura um, fuel pods, one either side of my stem. One of them had a bottle in it because partly there wasn't really room for a big bottle uh, alongside my frame bag because being a woman and fairly short, or actually just being fairly short, I don't have a big triangle, therefore I've got less space to carry stuff. That's a much bigger subject. Yes, I know that feeling. So I had a bottle there. It also meant that I drank more often because I could see it and because I didn't have to worry about being really tired and stupid and trying to get it out for the frame and failing and crashing. So that helped to keep me hydrated, keep me going. On the other side, I had a fuel pod that would have usually some fruit or some sweets or some nuts or something Mm. that I would snack on as I went. And then I had the... um, it was a big Apajura front bag, which was a sort of a, a dry bag rolled up into a mm-hmm. sausage. And that had, I think that had my sleeping stuff in it. And then on the front of that, it's quite a roomy pouch that they do that just clips onto there. Mm-hmm. And that was where I'd have the burek or whatever larger thing I yeah. was eating at the time. Um, <laughs> you have the smell wafting oh, as you yes. went to yeah. keep you moving. And actually, I could also balance stuff on top of the, ah. the whole setup. So there was one, if I go back through my photos of the race, there's quite a lot of different food setups. <laughs> and there was one where I had, I was in France and I bought a meringue the size of my head. <laughs> 
because I wanted to and I thought, well, I can, you know, that yeah. have enough calories for a Absolutely. couple of hours. So because um, I don't just eat cake on the road, but, you know, if you want to eat cake, you can. Absolutely. So I, um, that kept me going for the latter part of an afternoon. And uh, yeah, it just sat on top of, uh, of everything else. I occasionally had to hold it if I went over a bump. <laughs> And how, how do you feel yourself, really? I mean, I, we've sort of touched on it, but uh, in terms of moving away from the sweet stuff, um, I know you've uh, you've garnered yourself a bit of a hashtag, a mm. bit of a movement, shall we yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, the chapatite. <laughs> um, there's no getting away from that now. Um, I think the answer is everything and anything. Um, so my typical fueling strategy is little. And <laughs> when you're riding for 20 hours a day, I mean, you could have four little stops a day. You're going to eat quite a lot and you're going to cover quite a lot of ground. So in Little, everything is in the same place, no matter what country you're in. So you go in, on your right, you've got the local pastries and then you've got bread and rolls and things. On your left, you've got the veg. So I get sort of tomatoes, maybe some carrots and cucumber and stuff. Um, sometimes like a punnet of apricots or something like that. I preferred soft fruit, I think, just because mm. it was easier. I don't know. And then at the back, you've got cheese and maybe some salami or some ham or something like that and then moving along you've got orange juice you've got yogurt drinks which are good for calories and then you come down the middle aisle and you find the you know, chocolate and biscuits and whatever snacks you might want and I think with snacks I'd alternate between sweet and salty when I get mm. fed up with one I'd move back to the other so my banquets were normally it was pretty basic like cheese and meat sandwiches and lots of fruit and veg um you have to eat the fruit and veg well I mean I was craving it but I think you do because if you're on the road for two weeks you're going to get really run down if you don't have fresh stuff and vitamins mm -hmm. going in and also your gut is going to completely <laughs> pack in so yeah. it was there was a lot of um I'd always go for the you know, the juice that it's actually got some sugar in it as well, but it's also fortified with vitamins. Yes. And I thought, vitamins are probably going to help here. Let's have a couple of those. That's good. I love how you've got little completely mapped out in your head. And you yes. can just walk around it and know exactly what <laughs> well, you're getting. Well, it's about efficiency <laughs> as well. Yeah. I mean, it was, in some ways it was about comfort because everything is changing around you all the time. Mm -hmm. So you actually want something that's the same every time. Yeah. It's like coming home at the end of the day. But also you can get around little a lot faster Yeah, because you know where everything is. And if you go to one of those enormous French supermarkets that they have oh, everything, yeah. I mean, it's really exciting and the produce is amazing <laughs> and there's all these exciting foods you haven't tried, but you could be in there for like yeah. 45 minutes. A bit overwhelming. Yeah. Whereas little, <laughs> if it's not a busy time of day and the queues aren't long, you can be in and out really quickly and there's actually not very much choice, which is yeah. helpful. So there you go. It's a good game plan. Mm. Um, Save time. Yeah. And do they have Aldi as well? Shall we say that other retailers are available? Yeah. <laughs> often little but okay. yeah they have Aldi. <laughs> um so let's uh let's go to more of a kind of uh addressing the, the kind of mental barriers that can come with this kind of race um it's self-supported mm -hmm. is it does it feel isolating no curiously um so yeah, self-supported. You're not allowed to have any outside assistance. So you can't have, for example, your mates following you in a car and handing you snacks yeah. or anything like that. You can't have, I don't know, your partner phoning up to book you a hotel down the road. Um, and you can't have help from other racers either. So, mm. for example, if you come across another rider who has a puncture and their pump has broken, you cannot lend them yours no. you will both be disqualified for offering and for receiving assistance which could be quite harsh yeah <laughs> uh, 
How do you deal with that? How do you ride past someone and say, sorry? Uh, well, I, I never had to, <laughs> oh, okay, frankly. <that's> good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, there, there were a couple of times um, where I was... I was once sheltering from the rain with another rider because there was a storm happening and we were both eating and I was about to offer him some of my food and then I thought, technically, I shouldn't. <laughs> so I just, I said, sorry, I would offer you some, but, you know, self-support. That's um, a good excuse. And you're not allowed to draft either. Yeah. And people are quite careful about that. So you will sometimes see another rider on the road. Not very often, like you're mostly on your own, but when you do, it will always, both of you, there'll be a sort of etiquette of, right, we can ride alongside each other, that's cool. Mm. But if one of you pulls ahead you both are responsible for making sure that there's no draft happening. Yeah. And people were really good about that. Like, it would you would acknowledge it between you and, you know, the person in front would say, you all right back there? Yep, okay, there's a bit of a gap, good. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so you are on your own, practically speaking. But I didn't feel isolated at all. Partly, I think, because I have a really high tolerance for being alone and I like it and this was a great opportunity to be on my own for a really long time um but also I think because with a race like this you're really really part of something mm. so even though you might not see another rider for sometimes several days you know they're all out there and they're yeah. all fighting the same battles and going through the same triumphs and disasters and littles and all of that <laughs> and there's also the dot watchers. Yes. Um, so you're all carrying trackers. And at home, everybody is watching the map on the internet with all of the dots moving across it. And I mean, guaranteed at any given moment of the day, there will be someone watching the dots. Mm -hmm. And in my case, because I tended to do stupid things like go to Albania when no one else did, <laughs> there'll be quite a few people watching my dot thinking she's probably going to do something stupid any minute. Let's watch. <laughs> Um, which had its pros and cons. I mean, I, I hated it at times, thinking, God, I'm going really slowly today, riding uphill into a headwind all morning. I must be going about five miles an hour. And everyone is probably watching and thinking, oh, why is she going so slowly? Um, but then a lot of the time, I absolutely loved it. Like, yeah. there were always people willing you on. There were always yeah. people rooting for you. And if you did say you were having a hard time, um, they'd all pile onto social media and say, don't worry, we're with you. We believe yeah. in you. And... Sometimes I'd think, no, you don't, I have no idea what I'm going through. But, you know, a lot of the time that would really, really help. Yeah. And to think that, you know, I can't see them, but they're all, they're all there. That's nice. And it was actually coming out the other end of the race, like finishing, um, almost felt as though I was letting go of all that. And then it was quite isolating. Um, and, yeah, I mean, after the race... I had a massive physical and mental crash every single time, which mm. is completely understandable because you've just emptied yourself out and of you've course. been kind of holding it together for the time you're on the, the road. And then once the race finishes, you completely fall apart and you don't have any strength or energy left. Mm. And also, you no longer really have everyone kind of watching you and willing you on. And your purpose is not as simple. Like in the race, it's just keep going yeah. until it's time to stop eat, sleep, keep going. And everybody supports you in that. And when you falter, everyone says, oh, come on, we believe in you. You can keep going. But then once you get home and you've got to pick up the reins of your life, but you are exhausted and you're not equal to that, mm. everyone's still watching the people who are racing or they've lost interest or they want to talk about what hero you are when you're really <laughs> not in the mood because <laughs> you've yeah. never been less of a hero. Yeah. So that, I think, was a bit more isolating. 
Okay. And the thing is, presumably, you know, you're out when you're riding up a mountain, for example, you're not actually um, watching your social media. You're not aware of the conversations that are going on. And obviously, you know that people are watching. But how do you kind of really dig into yourself? How do you motivate yourself when it's really hard? It's it's getting dark. You're approaching maybe a massive climb. How do you where does the motivation come from? I think it varies depending on the situation and what kind of mood I'm in. I mean, sometimes it will simply be, well, I've got to get over this mountain because at some point I need to eat and sleep. And that means I have to get out of this situation. So keep going. Um, and sometimes it's simply that, yeah, if you if you give up, it's much harder to get yourself out of the situation. I did mm-hmm. once in an earlier ride, I was riding across Asia and I got to a point riding through the Tankamakan Desert where I simply couldn't go on. And I sat beside the road with my head in, the hand, my head in my hands for quite a long time, yeah. thinking, well, this is it. I've given up. I've failed. And then thought, OK, so what do I do now? How do I give up? Um, I probably have to thumb a lift from one of the cars that passes every two hours or so. And then where do I get a lift to? I don't know, maybe some Chinese city. <sighs> Um, and then from there, I guess I find a hostel or something. And then maybe, th- do I go home then? Do I book a mm. flight? And that seemed like a really big series of decisions to make. Yeah. So in the end, I just kept going. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, that's a good tactic. <laughs> that's, it's almost like laziness. Yeah. Um, and I think it's something I thought about while I was writing the book. Um, because part of my motivation to keep going, it was almost as though it was a it was just a goal unto itself. Mm. It, I, it was just keep going. That's all you do. This is your purpose in life is to keep going. Um, it wasn't like, I've got to finish this. I've got to get to the place. It was just keep pushing forward. And it occurred to me that in a way, this wasn't necessarily a very noble thing. You know, it sounds inspirational if you put it the right way. But in some ways, it was almost this sort of passiveness mm. Um you know, I just keep going. If I were a more inventive, proactive person, I would look at this situation and think, let's find a way of getting myself out of this difficult, unpleasant, uncomfortable place I find myself in. But I didn't really have the energy or the gumption for that. So I just kind of pressed on. So there are ways in which it is, you know, it's an incredibly impressive thing. And I think there are ways in which it's actually not. Okay. Um, you just get it into your head that your purpose is to keep going. And yeah. I have had races where uh, I didn't finish simply because I didn't have the the yeah. will to keep going. I got to a certain point and realised that I didn't have it in me and you can't pretend to yourself that you no. do. So, No, that, that's fair enough. I mean, one of the um, sort of the strategies that you uh, you talked about in in where there's a will is your invisible peloton, which I just love. Is there? Could you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, I love the idea of the invisible peloton. It's it's the people we have around us. Um, and if you're doing a long hard ride, um, well, I was going to say overnight, but at any point, <laughs> it might really help you to. Think of the people you know riding alongside you or breaking the wind in front of you or just being there and willing you on. Um, And I first did this really the first time I did the Transcontinental, riding up Mont Ventoux. um, And I imagined people who inspired me to get me to the top of the climb. Um, I got the idea, I think, from a few different people. And one of them was Sarah Uten. Um, She had talked a few years previously of 
doing a very long, hard ride through eastern Russia and absolutely having to get to a certain point the next day, but having, I think it was 300 kilometres to ride or something, it was a long way. She was absolutely exhausted and she imagined everyone she knew around her either riding or running or, you know, if they were a kayaker, maybe paddling alongside her. And uh, I've taken that on and that that really helps. And other people now say, you know, they, they have their invisible peloton and uh, and I'm in it sometimes. Oh. Think, oh, great. Well, you're in mine too sometimes. <laughs> it's it's really nice. And, yeah. you know, sometimes people know you're out there having a hard time and they're thinking of you and that really helps. And sometimes they don't. But, you know, you can still take advantage of the of their strength. And it's it's lovely. It's um one of the many ways we have of realising we are all very connected and we never do anything on our own. Yeah. Would you say winning is the main thing that gets you to the start line? Or is there something else that drives you? It's definitely not winning. Um, I didn't know that, though, until I won. Um, <laughs> I would say it's it's competitiveness, but competitiveness and winning aren't always completely connected. Um, I know for some people they are. I know some people absolutely battle to win a race, really, really love winning and want to win again and again. And I know a lot of people like that. And that seems a very understandable motivation. Um, I am very, very competitive and I like to challenge myself and try hard and take on things I'm not sure I can do and battle to get through them. But um, when I won, it was almost like I'd overdone it. And I was like, oh, go on, I tried so hard, I accidentally fell off the end. And now what do I do? You know, <laughs> how do you carry on struggling when you've won? Um it was a really surprising thing because I had tried so hard and I'd always wanted to, I'd, I'd aspired to be the best. And it didn't feel anything like I'd expected. I expected to feel kind of triumph and this massive rush of victory and happiness and pride. And what I felt at the finish line was completely dwarfed by just the wondrousness of being on the road for two weeks. When I think about the race, I think about this magical, vibrant two weeks of being on the road and keeping going and seeing amazing things and eating amazing things and just all the things that happened to me while I was on the bike. And uh, winning was a bit of a letdown. And I felt afterwards a bit kind of guilty and ungrateful. and thought, God, I'm, everybody's congratulating me for this victory and I actually don't really feel very strongly about it mm. um there are there are better things i think um yeah. so that really in a way killed my motivation to race much more because i thought well you know the best thing that can happen in a race is that you win and i've figured out that that doesn't mean as much to me as i thought it would so yeah it did kind of befuddle my motivation a bit but you did return the following year so what was it that um, well, I think I returned the following year, partly because I had a free place. Oh, fair enough. You, know, you, you win, <laughs> you get in the next year. It'd be a shame to lose that. And I had, I mean, I, I had partly been swept up in the idea of me as a winner. And I thought, well, yeah, now I'm a person who wins races. I should go and win some more and become a proper athlete. And I was trying to be that sort of person. Um, but I wasn't. You know, mm. I, I'd heard about other races who had proper training plans and, you know, really meticulously prepared every single part of their race. And I wanted to be that person. And I tried a bit, but I also just 
kept thinking, I really should be on it by now. And I'm just riding my bike lots. I really should have actually made a training plan and thought about my strategy. And I, I'm not. I kind of know I can do it because I just want to go out there. Like, as soon as I'm on the bike, I can ride across the continent. And that's great. But partly it was that I didn't want to turn it into a mm. series of spreadsheets because I love riding my bike. I didn't yeah. want anything to get in the way of that. So, yeah, I mean, I wanted to be a real athlete but I'm not I just really like riding my bike and, and that's in, fine yeah um in the end I I dropped out of the race and just carried on riding fair enough did you find that um having won the 2016 race that the following year was there much of a difference at the start line oh god yeah <laughs> it was really hard work um yeah everybody wanted to talk to me and everybody knew who I was and I couldn't walk across a room without every other person I passed stopping me and wanting to say hi and say something. And, you know, people I didn't know. Um, and it was really, you know, there was it was no privacy mm. at all. I wanted to go and sit in a corner with my brother and my sister-in-law and maybe have some chips and just think about what was to come. And I just couldn't. And even after the race started, I thought, yeah, when the race starts, we'll be on the road on the bike. And that's then I get my private time. But every time I ran into another racer, like sometimes it was someone I knew and that was great. Yeah. Um, but even people I didn't know, were like, oh, yeah, you know, I watched the videos of you last year. You know, it's great to meet you and let me tell you all about my race. And I mean, I sound really ungrateful, but I think I wanted to be on my own. That was yeah. why I was doing it. I wanted this beautiful, solitary experience. And it it kind of wasn't anymore. Yeah. Um, there were too many people watching me and that wasn't why I was doing it. Yeah. And I realised that all of the sort of prancing around on social media I'd done the previous year and showing <laughs> off my cake and stuff had come back to bite me a bit because now <laughs> this is what everybody was after. And it wasn't um, the kind of sort of beautiful in my own head on my own bike experience that I was after. So yeah. I, I turned off the tracker and went and rode up some mountains and felt this I felt really gleeful the few days after I quit because nobody knew where I was or what I was doing <laughs> and I was having an amazing time I was riding long distances I was finding amazing mountain passes and views and nobody had any idea it was all for me brilliant. and I think I needed that <laughs> that's brilliant but there were also a lot more women on the start line as well weren't there there were yeah so the the number of women doing the transcon kind of really curved upwards sharply in those years. The first year I did it, I was one of three solo women and mm. the other two had dropped out within the first couple of days. Um, and then I dropped out. Um, and then the second year, I think, I can't remember, but it was like eight, nine, ten. Um, the year after that, uh, there were 30. Wow. It was incredible. It was such a cool thing to be part of. Suddenly there was like a sizable number of women on the start line. And I kept running into people and just thinking, <laughs> what, another one? It was great. That's brilliant. I think there were actually 50 signed up and then a few didn't make it to the start line. So Wow. That just goes to show the, the effect that it can have um, to see someone achieve what you've achieved. Yeah. Well, um, so this year, as probably everybody knows, a woman won the Transcon yes. outright. She was the first rider in. Yes. Fiona Colbinger. And I'm very interested to see mm. what that does to the numbers of people on the start line next year. Yeah. Well, the, um, it's, it's open now, isn't it, the registration? Mm. So let's see what happens. Are you riding next year? No. No. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, you've set yourself another challenge for next year, haven't you? Well, I shouldn't mention this in a cycling podcast. Um, I've experimentally entered a running race Ooh. and we'll we'll see how that goes. That's that's early in the year. I'll be back to cycling for the summer. Good. Well, that's all we care about. No, I'm kidding. Um, OK, so we're going to have to wrap up as much as I really want to keep you here for much, much longer. Um, I would like to ask you, um, what's the one thing that you hope readers will take away from this book? Just one. Or give me a top five. <laughs> what yeah. what would you like people who read your book to take away from it? Um, apart from Emily Chapel is a genius, um, <laughs> I I would like uh, cyclists and racers to recognise their world and things they've been through, and even better if if I could achieve that, I'd like them to think wow, yes, I recognise this, I've been through this, but I never thought to put it that way. She's put into words what I always felt but never knew or something like that. And people who are not cyclists, I would like them to pick up the book and read it, uh, which they may not because who would read a book about bikes? And I would love it if people who weren't at all part of that world thought, wow, this is fascinating, this means something to me. I was gripped on every page. I didn't glaze over when she started to talk about bikes. Um I'd like it to appeal to cyclists and non-cyclists alike and I'd like people to find something in there that they that they connect with in whatever way and that hopefully is has a slightly different way of telling stories we all know already. Mm-hmm. Well, as someone who read your book in one sitting, I can confirm that that's definitely the case. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay, so yeah, um, Emily's latest book, Where There's a Will, Hope, grief and endurance in a cycle race across a continent is out now. Um, I really recommend it. It's a it's a wonderful read. Um, Emily, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, on Twitter, I am at Emily Chapel. Chapel has two P's and two L's. And on Instagram, I'm at Emily of Chapel because Emily Chapel was taken. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, feel free to go and follow other random Emily Chapels. They're all pretty good. <laughs> Brilliant. I did look up Emily Chapel. There's a, a Glaswegian artist with the same name. Yeah, so, she yeah. seems awesome. I've not met her yet. Oh, you should. Um, okay, well, thank you so much for joining us. It was really lovely to have you here. There's so much more I'd love to ask you, but um, our listeners should definitely look you up and follow your progress. And thank you so much, Emily. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Bike Radar Meets and don't forget to subscribe through your podcast service. We will have more meets coming up soon as well as our regular fortnightly chats and road and mountain bike tech talk series. That's it from me. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bike Radar.